Speed up with podcast speed up. Conversations with Tyler is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, bridging the gap between academic ideas and real-world problems. Learn more at mercatus.org. And for more conversations, including videos, transcripts, and upcoming dates, visit conversationswithtyler.com. I'm greatly honored to be here tonight, of course, with all of you, but also with Alain Berthaud, who is one of the world's great urbanists. We'll just jump right in. If you were to meet a 20-year-old Robert Moses before he set out <laughs> on his career, what would you tell him? Ah, yeah, this is a difficult question. Uh, I would tell him infrastructure is important. But infrastructure is there to serve people, and just look at people before you look at infrastructure. Infrastructure is there as a, as a tool, not as a purpose in itself. And if you could send the young Mr. Moses, say, to Indianapolis and away from New York City to do his business elsewhere, and he would have a happy life, but New York would proceed without him, would you make that choice? You mean uh, making the choice for him? You can give him a lucrative <laughs> fellowship at Purdue University. Yeah, yeah. And he'll be very busy in Indiana, and New York will go along at the track it was on. Well, that will, that will be his choice. Yes, probably I will try to convince him to go to Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the argument that Airbnb is ruining either New York or some other historic cities? If you look at Florence... It appears that about 20% of central Florence is now Airbnb residences. Does this concern you? Yes. And uh, this concerns me because normally I will say, well, so what? But in fact, it is not the case. I think that this is a case where we have to, to look at it a bit differently. It reminds me a bit what happened in Switzerland at a certain time where to, to own a piece of land in Switzerland was becoming valuable for a lot of people because, uh, you know, it, it gave access, you know, a refuge, let's say. And uh, Swiss farmers who wanted to, you know, expand their field to have some more cow suddenly were competing with a Russian oligarch. And uh, obviously this is not traditional economics. So although uh, I will uh, be rather laissez-faire, I think this is a case where, and indeed the Swiss government put a red line around certain area. You can still buy, foreigner I think can still buy properties in, in Zurich or in Geneva, but uh, they, they are not allowed to compete with uh, Swiss farmers in buying land. So I think uh, I have no, uh, let's say, I've not studied Airbnb as much, but uh, I think it's a case where you have to look at it that way, that uh, you, you have a competition here. Uh, in cities, are, tourism might be important and interesting, but uh, it's not a sense of city. The cities are, are the people. Uh, if the people are gone from a city, it's not very interesting. Why are so many contemporary cities depopulating within the core? So Paris is slightly depopulating. I've seen data that Los Angeles and Chicago are slightly depopulating. And Chicago is not about the Russian oligarchs, right? Yeah. Manhattan would be depopulating if not for new arrivals. 
Why is that happening? And is that some kind of failure of urban labor markets? I, I don't think uh, uh, densities has gone down in all those cities. I don't think, in the case of Paris at least, that it is depopulated. I think that you had a gentrification of uh, central Paris. So people who used to live in 10 square meter or 12 square meter, there's still some who do, uh, are living now is 120 square meter. So you have a loss of densities. It doesn't mean a loss of population in this sense. You know, New York had a, uh, had a you know, Manhattan had a density, which was two or three times higher than it is now. Uh, I don't think you can say that Manhattan is depopulated. But you have yourself moved to Glen Rock, New Jersey, right? Yes. <laughs> what has gone wrong? <laughs> in my, how do you say, in my dotage? <laughs> in Manhattan, will you find better food on the streets or the avenues? Ah, uh, uh, in the streets. In the streets, definitely. Why? Yeah. I think you have a more specialty restaurant in the streets. And uh, in the avenue, you have more... People who just uh, are transient, you know, pass by and uh, are looking for faster food. I think so. If San Francisco and Oakland had an ideal building code, they would bring you in to write it so there would be more freedom to build. How much would rents be cheaper in the Bay Area? Your intuitive guess. Yes. Yes, it will be cheaper. But how much? Not much. Why not? No, uh, how much? You say how much? You want me to give a figure? How would you think about the problem? Would it be you would simply get more building and more powerful economies of scale and rents would go up, but more people would have productive jobs? Or could you actually make life there cheaper again so the poor could move in and be upwardly mobile in economic terms? I think that if you, if you build much more, much more, uh, and, you, uh, and regulation allows to have a variety of building uh, and building size, uh, you could have a, a way where the poor outbid the rich by consuming less in a very desirable location. This is what you see sometime in Paris, by the way. The YIMBY movement, yes, in my backyard, will it ever come about? There's been a lot of force behind the YIMBY movement over the last year, but not that many concrete victories. Is it simply the case that opposition will be mobilized and the YIMBYs will lose, or does it have a future? I think it has a future. Well, this is uh, what this talk is all about, and your talk in general. I think uh, people have to to understand, to learn what uh, what is implied by a freezing city the way they are. You know, and uh, the cities cities are alive because they change constantly. As soon as you freeze city, and this is what uh, NIMBY is all about, you're freezing cities. The city dies. You know, that the, like a human being that you tied in a straitjacket. But if we look around the world, we don't see that many traditional cities that have overcome NIMBY. So Houston has done it. Warsaw, Poland has done it. There was so much destruction. Right. People were happy to get rid of old communist buildings. Right. But the so-called nice cities, have any of them overcome NIMBY and seen NIMBY win? And if not, why are you optimistic? What will change? I, ha, huh. maybe I'm not optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I think that maybe in cities where you have um, the house itself is not your only way of saving, have a, have a better chance of uh, you know, uh, being yimby than as soon as 
the only way, you know, if people perceive that the only way of saving money for their retirement is in their house, you know, their house is some kind of a ATM machine, uh, then they, they will be, you know, they don't want any competition. I remember in, in Washington, uh, some years ago, there was a letter to the Washington Post. Somebody was saying, how oh, is it possible that uh, in Fairfax County, they allow more houses uh, where my house has increased in value in the last five years by only 5%. So they thought that was a legitimate case. Uh, you know, if your house uh, increased only by 5%, then you should stop every other houses so that your house will go. So I think if people consider that this is one of their... In a way, I think it's a question of property right. We have a, a system which decreases your property right within the boundary of your lot or your apartment. Uh, you know, you, you cannot, you see this morning, for instance, in the New York Times, the, somebody get fined $15,000 because they install a dryer and a, a washing machine in a basement. So that's a decrease of property right. And at the same time, you increase the property right outside your boundary, but it's a negative property right. You are allowed to prevent people from building what they want. You, so, you know, this, this dilution of property right, I think, is a big cause of NIMBY. How, how do we reverse it? I don't know. Because in a way, it seems very democratic and legitimate to have a say about what your neighbors is doing. You know, you say, well, I'm preserving the character of the neighborhood. Well, if uh, the character of the neighborhood has to be preserved in Manhattan, you know, if it was preserved uh, 50 or 100 years ago, uh, there would be no Manhattan. Would the political economy work better if building regulations were either done strictly at the state level or maybe even at the neighborhood or even the street level, as opposed to city and county? Right. Should the scale be moved up or moved down? What would give us a better outcome? I think it should be moved up. And what do you think would happen then? Then the people who want in will have more say. Uh, if, you, if you keep it at the, at the street level, I think uh, the people who control it are the people who are living there, and they are against everybody who wants to move in, by definition. I have another very easy question for you. As you probably know, many of the switches in the New York City subway system date from the 1940s or sometimes even the 1930s. How are we going to fix that system? If NIMBY is ruling, how do we redo the subways, the Second Avenue line? That was sort of started or planned in the early 70s, and it just now opened, what, a year ago? What's going to happen with the New York City subway? I think that's, uh, that's one of the most terrible things, you know, the, the destruction of the, of the transit system. Uh, you know, the, the, the densities in, in Manhattan and in New York are such that... You can have mobility only if a relatively large number of people are using the transit. And, you know, some cities can work very well without transit, like Atlanta, probably, or Houston. But that's not the case in Manhattan. That will not be the case in Paris or, or London. So you have to maintain the transit system in the same way as you maintain, uh, you know, the, the sewer system and the water system. Uh, I think that the, the, the destruction, you know, the lack of maintenance in uh, the attention, you know, which has been given to the subway uh, is equivalent of uh, lead in the water in Flint or things like that. Why is the Moscow subway so wonderful? Because uh, Stalin built it. 
like everything else Stalin built, right? <laughs> no, you, you had the taste for architecture, you have to recognize it. Now, some of your best known academic work is about the spatial organization of socialist cities. Why were so many socialist cities so relatively empty in their centers or cores? Uh, because, uh, because uh, you know, according to Marx, uh, land has no value, only labor has value. So if land has no value and you are in the center of the city where a lot of people would like to live or work, but if land has no value, you are stuck with the existing building. Every time you want to move a building or, or renew it, you will have to ask to have a planner decide it, and it will be also a, a cash expenditure. You know, in a in a market city, it's a price of land which finance the development of new building. Automatically, you don't. It is developers who realize that the land is expensive and therefore they can build more. Who are asking the planners, please let us build an office building there or something. If you are in a socialist country, you know, like I have seen China before the reform or, or Russia at the time I was in the in the early nineties, you need the initiative of a, a planner to say, we are going to build something new here, they will have to compensate, the, not the owner, but the user, to move them somewhere else. So to the state, this is a, a net cash expenditure. To replace a low building by high building is a cash expenditure that the city has to pay. And uh, where in a market economy, of course, it is done automatically, uh, in a certain way, you know, in a way, uh, the, the system is reversed. In a market economy, it's the planners who are slowing down the transformation, where uh, in, a, in a socialist economy, the planners realize that it's not a very good use of land, but cannot find the money to, uh, to change the land use. If NIMBY is such a big problem, might it not, in some bizarre second-best regard, make sense to put so much industry in the city center? Because as more growth comes, people will be quite happy to get rid of it? Uh, yes, normally, yes. Uh, but uh, you see what, what happened with Amazon in New York uh, not so long ago was an interesting... Now, uh, I don't know if you should, should talk too much about that, but uh, you know, I, I think Amazon uh, did a terrible, had a terrible approach to cities by having them bid for each other, because I'm absolutely convinced being an urbanist myself, that they knew exactly where they wanted to go uh, in advance. Uh, so uh, that was a little unfair. And the, there was a, a grassroots movement against high-income people coming to the city. I found that very disturbing uh, because, after all, high-income people create a lot of job for all sorts of income at the same time. You cannot, uh, you know, in the same way as you should not exclude poor migrants from coming from the city. I don't see any rationale for excluding uh, high-income people either. Now, the fact that the city limits so much the, ex uh, the, the construction of new housing, you know, in my book, you see there is a chapter which, which has the table of uh, New York city zoning, and it shows the, the incredible uh, limit in the number of dwelling units which can be built block by block with completely arbitrary numbers. Now, uh, on one hand, you have higher income people coming to the city. On the other hand, the city is blocking the development of new housing uh, and controlling also the, the size of it, uh, you know, 
privileging, in effect, larger houses than the demand. So when higher income people come in, yes, certainly it will raise the rent, but not because uh, higher income people are, are greedy or whatever. It's because the city is blocking the supply at the same time. So you cannot have an increase in job and a freeze in housing at the same time. So the problem is not the people coming in. The, the problem is the city refusing to admit that uh, they need to build more housing. How well does the current version of Shanghai work I, as a city? As a city, I think it, uh, it works relatively well in the sense that, uh, you know, the, the Chinese even, well, I, I say up to four years ago when I, still could get a visa to go to China. Uh, uh, and, uh, it, you know, up to four years ago, I think that the Chinese at the local level understood market better than Mayor de Blasio. Or it's a low bar. But, <laughs> and, uh, you know, why? Because uh, they, they were interested in the, you know, in the GDP of the city. Now, it has also some drawback. Many mayors in China told me, I'm the CEO of this city. Uh, and uh, in a certain way, it, it created uh, certainly also some problem with pollution, something like that. But I think they were very, very interested in, uh, uh, in the way city developed. I, I remember in, uh, in Sichuan, a, a city of about 600,000, where they, they wanted to to develop, uh, you know, they had a high-tech industry, they were doing flat screen. They wanted to expand it, but to expand it, they needed top engineers to do the research. It was difficult to attract top engineers from Shanghai or the East Coast to go to Sichuan in a relatively small city because, so the, the mayor say, the only way we can expand this is to have very good education and good environment. So we can, as a selling point, an engineer in Beijing or Shanghai or or even Guangzhou uh, will be probably interested to live with his family in an environment where uh, the air is pure, the the garden are well-maintained, and the schools are very good. So you see, you, you had a mayor here who understood really how to attract people and how to grow the city. How well does Shenzhen, China, work as a city? Uh, and that's from basically nothing, right? Right. Something that people forget about Shenzhen, the history of Shenzhen. I, I, Shenzhen, may I tell a little story? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was in Shenzhen probably in, uh, what, in 84, 85 maybe? And uh, the city of, at the time, it, you know, it was basically not a fishing village, but it was a small town. It has uh, altogether about 300,000 people. And uh, the mayor of Shenzhen showed a team of the World Bank, I was part of it, a plan. And they say, we want to build a city of 5 million, and would you finance infrastructure? And uh, I did the back of the envelope calculation. I said, 300,000 to 5 million? Are you kidding? You know, try to do a city of a million and a half. Maybe two million will cost the infrastructure. This is completely out of the question. So Shenzhen is now 12 million people. So that, that, <laughs> that, that one, one skeleton in my closet. Uh, and, but what people forget about Shenzhen, uh, a lot of people think that Shenzhen was built the way Brasilia was built. Or some, you know, the government decided, let us do this. No, Shenzhen was a perimeter for the first time Deng Xiaoping say we are going to have a labor market. Within this perimeter, 
people are going to be able to change job. They are going to have salaries which is commensurate with their skills, and their employers uh, will be will be able to increase their salary or decreasing or fire them, depending on what they need. So what created the success of Shenzhen was the first labor market in China. And that's why in Shenzhen, you had people coming from all over, all over China. That's why many people in Shenzhen are speaking Mandarin and not Cantonese, because this has attracted a lot of people who refuse, who were bold enough, in a way, to, to, or confident enough, to say we don't need the, the big ice ball. You know, we, can, uh, we are confident in our own skill and we can make it. There are, there are some books, actually. There is a novel uh, called uh, Northern Girl, uh, which is written by a Chinese who came from the North and semi-skilled or unskilled. And she tells the story of... Uh, it's a novel, but I think it's very... Uh, you know, it, it explains exactly the point of view of uh, migrants coming to a city uh, raised in the context of China, where you had this guarantee of a job, but you will stay all your life in the same job. And, and then people realize that if they were relying on their own energy, they could do better than that. So it's really, the, the success of Shenzhen is really the creation of the first labor market in China. Will America create any new cities in the next century, or are we just done? Cities uh, need good location. This is a debate I had with Paul Romer when he was uh, interested in charter cities, and he had uh, he had this idea that uh, he, he could create 50 charter cities around the world. And my reaction, maybe I'm wrong, but my reaction is that there are not 50 very good locations for cities around the world. There are not many. Like, maybe, maybe... Uh, with uh, uh, road and belt, maybe the opening of uh, Eastern Asia, you know, the Central Asia, maybe, maybe the opening, you know, of the ocean route on the northern, you know, following the pole will create the potential for new cities. But cities like Singapore, uh, Malacca, uh, Mumbai are there for good reason, and they are, I don't think there are that many very good locations. Or Greenland, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. What is your favorite movie about a city? You uh, mentioned a work of fiction. Movie. I'll nominate Escape from New York. Uh, Casablanca. Casablanca. <laughs> because, you know, you know why Casablanca? Because it's a, it's a city. I mean, you don't, see, you don't see the city very much in the movie, but you see people coming in. And, uh, well, some want to get out too. Uh, but, uh, but you see people coming in and, and it's kind of a refuge, you know, it's, uh, so that's, that's what I find interesting. Now, as you know, the Saudis are trying to build a new city, Neom. One hears reports they're ready to spend $500 billion. I'm not sure that's true. But are you bullish or bearish on Neom? I'm bearish. Why? You don't create city by just, uh, putting concrete. But Brasilia worked. It's not perfect, yeah, but it's yeah. a city. Yeah, but it's a city of bureaucrats. Uh, but I'd know, rather they, they live no in choice. Brasilia than I mean, Rio. Uh, you know, the people who went to Brasilia were not the same people who went to Shenzhen. You know, uh, they, were, they were moved, I would say, even manu-mediterranean from, uh, from Rio de Janeiro. And yes, and, and the taxpayer of Brazil paid for Brasilia entirely. Nobody in his right mind would decide to live in Brasilia just by choice. You know, uh, <laughs> And uh, 
you know, it's it's one of the worst performing. So you know, not it's not my just my taste. I mean, <laughs> it, it's a it's a worst performing city. If you look at the number of you know uh, deaths of pedestrians per per ten thousand people, it has a world record. If you look at the segregation by income, you know, the the poor living at thirty kilometers of the city with not very good transport system, and the rich living entirely in the center. Uh, it, it is one of the worst records in the world in any measure you can have. But of course, it's a world heritage uh, city. And, uh, you know, and for the, the 50 years anniversary of the city, uh, I was invited by the committee who celebrated it. And I told them, but did you read what I wrote about what? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and they say yes, uh, we we want to have several point of view. <laughs> <laughs> so you see, uh, they are that tolerant. What will urban renewal look like in a post-retail world? Let's say online shopping continues to advance. We have big boxes all over the suburbs now, also in Manhattan. What will we do with this space? Uh, a lot of more restaurants and bars, and maybe barber shops. <laughs> Barbershops. Yes, I mean, not that I need (laughs) (laughs) Here's a question that's been bothering me for a long time. I feel only you know the answer. If I think about Ethiopia, it has more than 100 million people, yet its second largest city is only about 400,000 people. So you have some countries where the distribution of cities follows unusual patterns. So Thailand has an income more or less the same as Mexico, but an urbanization rate close to that of Guatemala. Do you have a sense of what accounts for these cases? Politics. Uh, you could say the same thing about France, by the way. Paris, Yes. Uh, you know, 12 millions. The next city, well, we claim, I'm from Marseille, we claim we are the next city at 1 million. The, the people from Lyon claim it too, but the next city is about 1 million. So you go from 12 million to 1 million. Uh, the, I think it, you cannot... You cannot change this. You cannot have a plan where say, oh, let us develop uh, smaller cities. Uh, if, if you have this pattern, it's because you have a political system which gives such an advantage to, to the major city that uh, this is where people want to go. And uh, if you are in a secondary city, you are so much penalized that, you know, so unless you change uh, the, the system, you know, the political system, you decentralize. You know, for instance, uh, French decentralization, uh, you know, which was done, what, in the 70s, 80s, has not resulted in a change in the pattern of cities. You know, Paris is still dominant and growing. And uh, uh, look at uh, Russia also. The, the only city which is really growing is, is Moscow. And I think it reflects a, a political system. And no, I, I don't, I think that uh, uh, planners trying to spread let's say, uh, cities without a change in the political system or even, even the culture. Maybe, you know, centralization is a culture. I mean, in, in the case of my country, France, I think centralization is a, is a cultural aspect. It's, it's not only political. Your own background, coming from Marseille rather than from Paris, I would not brag about it normally. But, but no, you, maybe you should brag about it. How has that changed how you understand cities? Ah, uh, because Hayek's characterization... I'm very, I'm very tolerant of messy cities. Messy cities. Yes. And why might that be coming from Marseille? You know, uh, when I was this, you know, when we were school children in Marseille, uh, we were used to a city which has, uh, uh, you know, really, there's only one big avenue. The rest are streets which were created locally, you know, the 
It's vernacular architecture. And in our geography book, we had this map of Manhattan. And our first reaction was, the people in Manhattan must have a hard time finding their way because all the streets are exactly the same. <laughs> and and in, in Marseille, we oriented ourselves by the angle that the street made with another. And some were very narrow, some were very, very wide. Well, not so wide, but uh, some were curved, some were, you know. And that's the way we oriented ourselves. And we thought, Manhattan must be a terrible place. We must be lost all the time. <laughs> now, in the middle of all of these conversations, we have a segment known as overrated versus underrated. So I'm going to toss out a mention, and you tell me if you think it's overrated or underrated. Okay? First, cableways as a method of urban transport, as used in Cali, Rio, La Paz, Mexico City, Medellin, Caracas. I have not seen the detailed numbers, but my gut feeling is that it's overrated. Why? Uh, because uh, cable, you know, uh, I used to do a lot of skiing, and I know how much uh, how much a cable car can carry, and it's not that much. Le Corbusier, overrated or underrated? Ah, <laughs> uh, as a, as a writer, is underrated. As a as an architect, well, more or less. As a as an urban planner, of course, he's grossly overrated. And what's your best Le Corbusier story? Ah. Uh, uh, <laughs> My best, uh, well, uh, you know, I, I met Le Corbusier uh, at, at a conference, uh, you know, in Paris twice at two conferences. And uh, he, he was a, at the time, he was at the top of his fame. And uh, he started the conference by saying, people ask me all the time, what do you think? How do you feel being the most well-known architect and you know, in the world. He was not a very modest man. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and he said, you know what it feels? It feels that my ass has been kicked all my life. <laughs> that's, a, that's the way he started this. You know, he was a very bitter man in spite of his success. And, his, uh, and I think that his bitterness is shown in his, uh, in his planning and uh, some of his architecture. Port-au-Prince Haiti, overrated or underrated? If you look at the food, it's underrated. Uh, you know, the culture is underrated. It's, it's a wonderful culture. The, the Creole culture, you know, is, uh, is one of the Creole language also is extremely rich. It has a lot of poetry. Uh, of course, after the earthquake, it has never recovered, I think. And this is very sad. Uh, I don't know if it will ever recover. I don't know. Uh, the, the, it seems that, uh, the political system is unable to evolve. It's probably slightly better than uh, what it was when I was in Port-au-Prince at the time of Baby Doc. You know, the, the, but uh, but the city has deteriorated since that time, and uh, and the combination of the earthquake, uh, the deterioration also of the environment due to uh, you know overpopulation and you know, deforestation. You know, deforestation in Haiti. You know that at the time of uh, Duvalier, one of the main source of tax for the government was kerosene. So kerosene was for the relatively wealthy people the the way of cooking. You know, the, the poor people then, because the kerosene was so expensive because of the high taxes, were cutting every tree, every bush in order to just to cook. So you know, this deforestation again was a man-made, but you know, a, a systematic uh, political things. 
e-scooters, overrated or underrated? And uh, will they last? I think they will last, maybe in a different form. But uh, I, I'm, a big, uh, I'm a big fan of e-scooter. Why are they better than Segway, which did not take off? You only see it in the nation, our nation's capital, right? Because, because I could see my scooter, bringing my scooter here, folding it, it and putting it under my chair. I cannot put a Segway under my chair. Segway is just too, too heavy. The popular music group, Limp Bizkit. <laughs> I have no, my taste in music, uh, like in literature, stopped in the 19th century. <laughs> The ideas of Hernando de Soto, putting everything on a property register. It's an excellent idea, but it's not the only idea. Are you afraid that it will lead to more regulation, more taxation, more confiscation, and aversion, in essence, of the Chinese social credit system if we make everything part of the formal economy in poor, corrupt countries? I think that uh, I don't make such a difference between the formal economy and the informal economy as most people do. My experience is that if you go in a slum, where, which is, you know, most uh, planners will consider informal, you, you don't, uh, you have a market which works exactly like other markets. You, uh, you have also expropriation. You have also, so I, I don't, I don't think that um, registering property in itself uh, will create a, a bureaucracy which will kill the, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, there are different ways of registering property. For instance, the way it was done uh, in the Kampong in Indonesia, where, uh, you know, by the way, another skeleton in my closet. Uh, the, you know, in Indonesia, the World Bank participated in financing the Kampong, you know, upgrading, which was basically slum, I mean, former villages, which uh, had to be, you know, provided with infrastructure. And our theory in the bank was that you can do that only if you provide property rights to the people who are living there, uh, whether they are squatters or not. You just give them, you know, you, you survey their plot, you give them property rights. And we insisted with the, the government, the Indonesian government, that uh, we, at the beginning, we insisted that we will not provide infrastructure unless there was also a program to provide property rights. Uh, the Indonesian insisted that this will cost too much. Uh, we did a back of envelope thing, and that it did cost too much, uh, you know, to have a proper survey, especially there were lots which were extremely small. So we decided to go ahead and finance it because Indonesia was such a big client, and the World Bank is still a bank. You need to lend money, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, so eventually what we found is that when people had infrastructure, they had the water meter, they had water, and they had the water bill, and they would pay the bill. And the bill itself was an address. You know, in order to have a bill, you have an address. The bill was a proxy for a property title. Uh, when some uh, people made study about that, they found that a property guaranteed by a water bill was discounted maybe about maybe 10% compared to a formal thing. So you see, I, I don't necessarily make a, you know, I think property rights are very important, but it's a guarantee that you will not be removed without compensation. But I don't make necessarily a, a very 
you know, strong boundary between formal and informal. I think there can be a lot of property rights which are just uh, uh, there and, and as, as effective, you know, you want property rights for transaction. And I think those uh, informal property rights could guarantee a very fair transaction the same way as, you know, formal one. Do you love graffiti? In the proper places. <laughs> <laughs> Why are so many cities in the new world so violent? If you take Arabic world before some of the recent wars, it was quite safe. Right. So much of Asia, not every part, but so much is extremely safe. Yes. Europe is relatively safe for the most part. But the new world, almost everywhere, has a higher level of violence. And why is that? I don't know. Uh, I have noticed that. I know it because, you know, I live in El Salvador. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, why there is such violence, for instance, in a country like Brazil? I don't know. Is it, is it the history uh, that, you know, the long shadow of history? Uh, I don't know. Yes, I have no idea. But it's, it's, it's puzzled me a lot because violence uh, in cities really decrease uh, the, the, the enjoyment, the efficiency of city, obviously. What do you think is the part of the world most likely to institute a charter city? Not 50, just one. The Middle East. And why? Because they will have to deal with their refugee problem, and it's not going to vanish, and probably a charter city uh, will be the only way to solve it. Uh, also because the Middle East has a lot of desert, and uh, a charter city, you know, it will be difficult to establish a charter city, uh, let's say, in Bangladesh, for instance, uh, where every land is cultivated. and uh, But if you have a large piece of desert which has no uh, alternative use, uh, I think it, it will be a good uh, way of uh, starting, you know, a shorter city. And the demand is really the refugees. You know, you, especially in the Middle East, you have a mix of refugees with all sorts of, of skills. You know, some unskilled, but some highly skilled. And that will be perfect for a shorter city. Would you care to nominate a specific location? For the land speculators in the audience, <laughs> uh, this is well, near Wall Street, of course. Well, cert certainly not Saudi Arabia, uh, but uh, probably Jordan seems to me, or, or maybe even part of Syria. If um, I don't know, if if there was some change of government. Now, what about the idea of relocating parts of large cities? So it's often claimed that Jakarta is sinking. It's one of the world's largest cities. It's choked with traffic. And the idea of relocating at least the capital city functions to Borneo, away from Java, is that feasible? If it's just a few bureaucrats, yes, of course, why not? But it's uh, more than a few bureaucrats but, but, in no, Jakarta, yeah, right? Uh, uh, in uh, you know, Jakarta, I mean, if we take Jabotabek area, the metropolitan area of Jakarta, now it's about 30 million people. Those 30 million people live together, have developed relationships together. You cannot move them. I think it will be much more efficient to look at, uh, you know, maybe some part of Jakarta, the part which is closer to the sea, you know, the old Jakarta, maybe have, have to be sacrificed, but certainly moving Jakarta, I think, is impossible. Uh, and it's not uh, feasible. Uh, what I fear with the new city is that a lot of resources will be taken away from Jakarta and put in the middle of Kalimantan, uh, you know, instead of, uh, uh, you know, involving. Again, it's possible that Jakarta needs some kind of operation, you know, cutting a limb or something. But there are still many areas which are completely viable, uh, 
you know, the, the hills toward Bogor, for instance, are completely viable. Uh, so it's possible you could have a translation, some maybe uh, five million people moving slightly, uh, slightly south, you know, from, from the sea uh, toward Bogor. But I think that, you know, Bangkok had the same problem some years ago uh, because for the same reason, uh, people were pumping uh, water, the water table, so the, 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 the city was sinking. And eventually they managed to stop that. And uh, so Bangkok is still flooded from time to time. It's not quite on the seaside the way Jakarta is. But uh, I think that uh, I think that technology should be the solution for Jakarta. I think that it will be a terrible mistake. Don't forget that Jakarta, with all all its uh, traffic jam, enormous traffic jam, pollution, and everything, still is much more productive. Uh, you know, the productivity of people working in Jakarta is much much higher than than a city like Bandung, for instance, which uh, is is rather pleasant to live in, you know. As a, so, so there is something about this agglomeration of people used to work together with different talents, different things, which make it efficient. I don't think you can translate, you can move this efficiency in the new Brasilia in the middle of Kalimantan. Now, you've worked about 20 years for the World Bank. Let's say you were put in charge and you could reform the World Bank any way you wanted. What changes would you make? Wow. This is a difficult question. Uh, and would it be harder or easier than moving Jakarta? I, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, institutions like the World Bank are like people. They age and they deteriorate. And at a certain time, you have to bury them and then, uh, and then build a new one. I'm not saying, by the way, that the, the, the job that the World Bank is doing, still doing, is... Uh, is not useful. I think there are a lot of uh, useful things. But I think that creating a new one, you know, it's a bit like Charter City. Let's say it's Charter World Bank. Yes. <laughs> How will self-driving cars change cities? Uh, you, you know, I was extremely optimistic about uh, self-driving car. I remember being invited uh, with Marion S. We were invited at uh, Google twice and uh, to discuss precisely what will be the impact on cities of self-driving car. And at the time, uh, what Eric Olson, I think, was uh, the, the head of the self-driving division at, uh, at Google's. And uh, when we asked him, when do you think you know, this self-driving car will be operational, we'll find them in cities. He, he said, well, I have a daughter who is 10 years old. And I think by the time she's in the age of having a driving license, I hope that uh, the Google car will be operational in the city. So that was about 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, so, it, it, so I think that eventually it will come. One of the most positive aspects of a self-driving car is that they will consume much less real estate because if you, if you go on Fifth Avenue at 25 miles an hour, which is uh, the speed limit, you, you, know, you need about, uh, if I remember well, 85 square meter of road because of the distance between two cars, uh, because you, you need a two-second reaction time. If you have a self-driving car, you could have a self-driving car within half a meter of each other. So you save on real estate. Urban transport is a real estate problem. But would the road simply become clogged? So I would have a self-driving car, and I'd have a robot that does my shopping for me. So I'd send my self-driving car to Whole Foods every four or five hours, every time I wanted a snack. 
and the roads would essentially become clogged and you couldn't use them. Or is that not the equilibrium? No, you, yes, exactly. You, you will not because you will never get your food if the, if the road is clogged, you know? But someone will clog the road, right? Or does, can we only have self-driving cars with congestion pricing? Yes, of course, we will have congestion. You know, uh, the roads, you know, the roads, the, the road is infinite, you know, within the city, uh, as soon as it stays built, uh, you cannot expand the road system uh, unless, well, you can have one or two tunnels from time to time, but that's about it. So the only way to better use this road is to price it, you know, you, in a way to control demand rather than supply. You know, you cannot expand supply. You can expand the supply of housing as much as you want. You cannot expand the supply of existing road. So, so pricing, yes, is the only way to do it, yes, probably. So that's why your food, if you ask, you know, if you order your food every 10 minutes, uh, your food <laughs> is going to be very expensive. Is there any good argument against congestion pricing for Manhattan? No. Uh, uh, the, uh, what bothers me about the approach is that uh, they are seeing congestion pricing as a new tax on people. Uh, you know, it's not a tax. It's a, uh, it's a way of efficiency, efficiently using road. If you, if you look at it as a cash car, it, it doesn't work. You know, it will, you know, it doesn't make sense at all. Uh, you, you have to, you have to maximize the use of road. And so you have to price it differently depending on the hours. I will even go to the system of Singapore. When you look at the discussion of pricing in Manhattan, we are far from it. Singapore, which now is going to price car, not only different part of the city, different price at different time, but also how long you use the road. That means if you park your car in a private parking, you don't pay anymore. You pay for really the use of the road. I always... Uh, I don't think I put it in my book because, uh, but uh, I always say that uh, roads, uh, urban roads should be should be priced like a cheap motel. You know, by every ten minutes you uh, <laughs> you, you adjust the price depending on the demand and the thing, and uh, and the location and uh, the day of the week. How do you feel about congestion pricing for residents in cities? So, as you know, the Chinese have a permit system, Huku system. Keeps people out of cities, but at the same time, many millions of people violate the system, but they pay penalties in terms of benefits and schools for their children. So it's a kind of congestion tax for a city connected to the number of people rather than a car. Good idea or a bad idea? It's a terrible idea. The way you see it in the UCO system is, is clear. Uh, it's, it's just a tax on poverty because people come to the city to work and they will pay whatever tax. So you, you are just paying for, for being poor. Uh, it's, it's not, it doesn't restrict people. It has also, instead of bringing their children, very often they leave their children in the countryside because in the countryside, you know, the school will be free. And, uh, and, and then that means, again, that young people who could be integrated in the city much faster if they came as children uh, will come much later. So it's a terrible system as all point of view. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's the equivalent of a congestion tax because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't prevent people from uh, coming to cities. And actually, uh, the Chinese economy in city is working based on people not having hukou. If you, if all the people having hukou were kicked out and pushed back in where they belong in the countryside, the Chinese economy will collapse. 
But Chinese cities are not that dense. So if I'm Chinese and I say, well, without the permit system, Beijing would be like Delhi. And Delhi is in some basic ways unworkable in terms of pollution, traffic. Not, not because of density, uh, because of deficient infrastructure, yes, and uh, because of the monopoly of the Delhi Development Authority on land development. Google Sidewalk Labs is trying to build a smart neighborhood in Toronto. This may or may not happen. For or against? Well, you know, I have nothing against a real estate operation done by Google in Toronto. Uh, I have a problem when they say that on a, on a piece of land, which is basically the size of Washington Square, they are going to solve a housing problem, a poverty, transport, a pollution, <laughs> Uh, I have a problem with that. I think that uh, the, the salesmanship, again, a bit like the Amazon thing, the salesmanship was terrible. Uh, you know, if they were saying, look, we are going to do a real estate operation, we are going to monitor what is the real cost of, for instance, building a five-story building in wood, whether it makes sense or not, well, that's fine. Uh, when I, I visited it, you know, Marinus and I visited it, uh, and, uh, you know, a few months ago, and I see a lot of gadgets. You know, they call it smart. I, I call that gadgets. Some are interesting. Some are probably very interesting. If they, but to, it is at a stage where it's only if it's replicated at a city scale that it, we will know if these gadgets are really interesting or not. So I think they oversold it. And well, it's going to probably blow in their face. That's my opinion. Will facial recognition come to major U.S. cities? I don't mean in the 7-Eleven, but done by the government on public streets. Yes, I, uh, I am afraid we can't avoid it. And how will this change cities? Well, I hope. Uh, it, it depends if we keep tab on our own government. I think it's uh, our control of the government. We, we, cannot, con we cannot avoid when a technology is, uh, uh, you know, is invented, you cannot disinvent it. But why can't we avoid it? So San Francisco passed a law banning facial recognition. We could have the entire country or many parts of it pass such laws. It reminds me of, uh, you know, the, the Japanese in the what, 16th, 17th century, they banned uh, firearms because they thought that uh, it was unfair for somebody who was a good swordsmanship to be killed by somebody who was an arquebus who has no skills. And... Uh, so they, they, they managed, because they were an island, very well controlled, to keep the technology out for some years. And then Commodore Perry came. As a, you know, I don't think you can disinvent uh, technology. I don't think, you know, if the, you know, you could say you could have a law which uh, prevent the government from having cameras uh, run by government. But then you will have cameras run by department store and you will see that the police have access to it. Eventually, they will, uh, so you cannot disinvent it. The, the only way we can control it to preserve our freedom is, is through precisely the, the government using it and having extremely strict uh, rules about uh, how to use it so that we don't end up, like in China, to have your, your personal files uh, uh, fed by, uh, by the picture taken in the street. America is a much safer country than it used to be. And our bus and rail lines are mediocre at best. So why has hitchhiking declined? Ah. Uh, <laughs> Topic to your, to your heart, yes? Lawyers. Lawyers, why? Yes. Uh, when I was hitchhiking, you know, when I was uh, uh, a student, uh, 
I was hitchhiking all over Europe. And obviously, sometimes there will be an accident. You know, a hitchhiker will be hurt. It will never occur to anybody to sue the driver. And sometimes, you know, I had, uh, you know, I took hike in, in cars where the driver was completely drunk. I mean, this, this happened. Uh, <laughs> and, but it would have never occurred to my parents if I had died to, to, to sue the driver. And uh, I think that came slowly, probably from the United States. Uh, and uh, as soon as, you know, you are not, as soon as you are liable for your passenger, and then first it can be the accident, after it can be something else, it can be, uh, you know, all sorts of things, uh, that the guy is smoking and you have inhaled the smoke or something like that. Uh, and, uh, or that the, the guy drops you in the wrong place and um, you get mugged and so you can sue the, the driver. So as soon as you do that, you completely discourage uh, this uh, Freeloading. I think it's, uh, uh, you know, again, the, we will see that not only, I think, for, we'll see that for mountain climbing also, I think. Uh, you know, there is a tendency before, you know, I have a lot of friends who died in avalanche. It would have never, never uh, occurred to anybody to sue the, the mount, you know, the village or the mountain where the avalanche took place. And uh, now it's a common thing. I see recently, you know, in Italy, there was a hiker Get lo- he was alone, he get lost. Uh, the family now is suing the entire uh, region because they thought that they didn't, they didn't look for him fast enough. You know, there were tens of helicopters, but they, they, you know, they say they didn't look at him fast enough. I think that as soon as you have a liability like that, you destroy any, any, any initiative. A personal initiative, like like uh, some, you know, hitchhiking was a form of freedom, which was very interesting. And for for our final closing segment, a question or two about the Alain Berto production function. Uh, what do you feel has been the comparative advantage you've brought to your work that has made you successful? Being born in 1939, I was brought up during the war, so comfort. You know, I, I could adjust. I knew that you could adjust your comfort to whatever is available, and you don't die from it. Then, uh, the other advantage, and for my wife and I, was that we graduated at the time of decolonization, and a lot of countries were absolutely desperate for people who were just, you know, at you know, the minimum skill you have when you just get out of university. You know, I, in my book, I talk about, uh, even I was not graduated in Algeria two, two years after independence. I was inspector de l'urbanisme, you know. I was 25 years old. Uh, nobody now graduating from any school will be inspector de l'urbanisme. Not that I wish him to be inspector de l'urbanisme, but uh, at 25 years old. So, you know, the, this idea that you graduate from a Western university at the time of decolonization, this gives you an opportunity. When I arrived in Chandigarh, you know, I, I was 23, I had taken a year off uh, from the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, and I arrived at the office of Pierre Jeanneret at Chandigarh, and I say, oh, you know, I'm looking for a job. He, he gave me a job like uh, right away, you know. Uh, okay, it was 60 rupees a month, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it, uh, it was a job. And uh, now, a Frenchman uh, going to Hyderabad and say, I'm looking for a job. Uh, I'm 23 years old. Uh, 
you know, nobody will take him seriously. I mean, he'll be kicked out of the office right away. But there so were see, other people born in 1939, right? <laughs> so what is your unique skill? No? Not that many. Not, not that, that many. many. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and my parents were not thrilled, I tell you. Uh, you know, I was born three months before the war, you know, so started. But, but yes, okay, then we go back. Uh, my, my father had a, had a cult of travel. He had traveled a lot himself. And uh, he, he always, you know, he would bring me, when I was 13, 14 years old, he would go for his business to Italy, for instance, to Parma, Bologna. Uh, I was so 12 years old, I guess. He would give me a map of the city. He will say, you have to go there, 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 there. Uh, here you probably could have a good lunch, and I meet you tonight at a restaurant with my clients here. And so I will spend the day with my map going around, and then in the evening my father will say, okay. This was a paper map, right, not GPS? It was, it was a paper map. There was no GPS. He said, you know, you, you enter this church there, uh, uh, what did you see on the west, uh, you know, on the west of the, you know, on the left of the entrance? So I better remember the Tintoretto was there, you know, because... Uh, so my father always told me, you, you know, when you travel, you don't look enough. Every time he traveled a lot, they say, I've not looked enough. I've not looked enough. And this was ingrained in me all the time. And uh, he, he, Now, another comparative advantage was to marry Marianne, yes. Uh, you know, there are not many women when we had this nice job with the City Planning Commission in New York in, in 68, 68, yes, 69. Uh, and I told her, well, there's this opening for a job as urban planner in Sana'a, Yemen. And she says, great, let's go. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, you know, again, uh, I don't know if any woman would have heard that, uh, you know, with such enthusiasm. You know, I didn't have to prod her anything. She, she was as enthusiastic as I was. Alain Berteau, thank you very much. And I recommend to you all his book, Order Without Design, available on Amazon and those remaining bookstores in New York City. We do have time for questions. There are two microphones. This is question time, not to make a statement. If it is not a question, I will cut you off. We are here to hear our guest. First question, at the mic. Yes, and I will take iPad questions as well. Uh, should the largest business city also be the political capital in countries? I never thought of that. I don't think it matters. I don't know. I will have to, yeah, that's a good question, actually, when you, I think of it. I never thought of that. Uh, you know, it's difficult to imagine Paris not being the capital city, but on the other hand... Or is it that the capital city become a business city, like, say, Washington, for instance, now expanded much more beyond, uh, you know, if, if you compare it to Canberra or, or Brasilia, it has expanded much more. In a, I, I, you, you know, I will think about it. <laughs> Sorry, I cannot answer this. Next question on this side. Um, I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana, the first example of the talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, Growing up there, I didn't think it worked very well, but I'd love to know your opinion on how you think Indianapolis, Indiana works and what you would do to make it work better. I never comment on city where I've never been or never worked. So I have difficulties, uh, you know, talking about Indianapolis in this case. I think that uh, every city has a chance. 
but it's it's a chance. I mean, it's it's luck sometimes, and they can develop or or, or stagnate. Uh, it's you know. Cities are, are very much like, like individual. They, uh, we all have the same physiology, but we have different culture, different, but we have also different luck. You know, like being born in 1939. <laughs> and uh, so I, I cannot really comment on Indianapolis uh, uh, again because I, I never comment on cities I don't know. Next question from the iPad. Quote, when you arrive into a city you've never been to, what and how do you prioritize what to see? So uh, before Google Earth, I will just uh, walk randomly through the city uh, and usually start from the center and to have a cross-section toward the suburbs, and I will just walk for hours and just, as my father recommended, look. And with the idea that nothing in a city is random, that uh, if you see a barbershop at a corner, it's because the owner of the barbershop found that it was the best place for his business to be there. And if you see a tall building next to a short building, it has a reason to. And you have to try to understand why it is there. Do not think, you know, one word I hate that the World Bank uses all the time is a report is uh, urbanization is haphazard. There's no such thing. Uh, urbanization, you know, is done by people and they have a very, very good reason for doing it. Sometimes distorted by regulation or something like that. That's true. Discrimination. But you have to understand why the city is it. Now, after Google Earth, uh, then it's very different because now I look at uh, an image of Google Earth and I select some neighborhoods in advance that I want to visit, which intrigue me. Why are they there? They seem particularly dense or not dense at all. Or, uh, you know, so, so I will select, uh, I will, rather than going at random, I will select uh, places based on uh, my interpretation of Google Earth. Next question at this mic. The Irish government has introduced rent uh, controls across Dublin to combat uh, increases in rent over the last couple of years. What policy prescription would you recommend as an alternative to them? Well, uh, yes, rent control. Sometimes, you know, I, I compare market to gravity. And uh, gravity is always there. Uh, Sometimes you want to counter gravity. You know, the, the outcome of gravity is not uh, always, uh, you know, and, you know, you want to break it. For instance, you invent airplane or you invent helicopter or balloon. That means that you understand gravity very well in order to, uh, to solve a problem. If you look at, uh, so you, you have some people, uh, who say, well, I don't believe in gravity and they invent, uh, flying carpet. A flying carpet has advantage on an helicopter or a plane that uh, it doesn't pollute. It's more comfortable. Uh, it costs nothing. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's land in your backyard. And rent control is a flying carpet. Uh, you see, it's uh, as soon as you try to find a solution to affordability and you look outside the market, all the market work, uh, immediately you end up like somebody will say, I want to invent an airplane, but I'm going to not take into account gravity. Uh, you know, you don't want to fly in this airplane. So uh, as soon as you, if you, when there is a problem of affordability, you know, and, and many cities now have this problem, you, you have some people who are very poor and cannot afford 
cannot afford a standard of housing which is above uh, what is, let's say, the minimum socially acceptable in this city. Uh, so you have to establish how many of those people are there. And usually, uh, if, it is, if it is more than 2 or 3 or 4% of the population, you'll have to adjust what is minimum acceptable, socially acceptable standard. For the rest of the population, housing should be provided by the market. I don't, what do I mean by that? I mean that if you look for a house and you have to be on a waiting list on 10 years to go on public housing or to go on uh, inclusive zoning, you know, the, the houses provided in New York by inclusive zoning, you, or you have a lottery, inclusive zoning, you have usually 120 units and you have a lottery, you have 150,000 applicants. This is not serious. You know, waiting list is not serious. A, the market should provide, uh, the market means that there are people moving in and moving out. Uh, when you are in a subsidized house, you don't move, you know, if you are in rent control house, you will never move because your subsidy is entirely linked. So you have no market, so you have no mobility. The idea of housing is mobility. At different time of our life, we want to move from one type of house to another and a different location. If we have a system which tie the subsidy to where we live, uh, we lose this mobility and it doesn't benefit anybody else. My criteria for affordability is that not to look at very poor people, which indeed, if they have bad health or, or bad luck, uh, you know, the, the, the country should take care of them. I have no problem with that if they have subsidized housing. But if you have, for instance, a school teacher, no, no job is more indispensable to the life of a city than a school teacher. If this school teacher cannot get a decent house within, I would say, 40 minutes commute from his school or air school, there's something wrong in your system. And it is not range control, and it is not uh, inclusive zoning, which will solve the problem, because for each of these solutions, uh, they will have they will have to be on a waiting list. You know, for rent control, the, the school teacher will have to wait for somebody who is under rent control will die, even maybe not, because rent control is usually inherited from... Uh, so, so you see, we have to find a, a solution for this, and the solution is usually... Uh, uh, Increased supply. Now, increasing supply means increasing supply by removing, you know, absurd regulation. Uh, and I'm not talking here, by the way, about fire regulation or, or, or sanitation regulation. I'm talking about regulation that the consumer can see. How large is a house? How large is the land uh, it is using? And what in this location? Uh, users should be able to make trade-off between those three things. And they are able to make it visually. A uh, user cannot make trade-off between fire, good fire regulation and bad fire regulation. We, we don't know how to do that. So I am not, again, it could be that some fire regulation are maybe over-designed or something, but I have no opinion on that. But I don't see that there is any purpose in limiting uh, artificially uh, the, the amount, of floor, amount of floor space, the amount of land, uh, in a certain location. You know, most of our regulations do that. They reduce floor ratio. That means that they force people to consume more land 
than they would otherwise. Of, of the, you know, if not, there would be no reason. To. At the same time, they put a, a minimum floor space for apartment in New York now, if I remember well, is something like 40 square meter or something like that. I'm still metric here. And, and uh, uh, at the same time, uh, they do not, so they, they force people to consume more land and more floor space than they would want. At the same time, they reduce the supply of land by not developing enough infrastructure or transport. We have been talking about the deterioration of transport in New York City. That affects directly affordability. That means that our school teacher will have to, to leave at maybe uh, an hour and a half from his school. And so one way, that means three hours. Uh, you know, the new proletariat now, uh, in cities are not the people who are starving or have no clothes like in the, during the, the Industrial Revolution. The new proletariat are the people who are commuting three, you know, uh, back and forth three hours or four hours a day. I've seen case in South Africa in Johannesburg where a woman was fully employed at a subsidized house, so she was not poor by any standard, uh, and she had a regular job uh, above the minimum wage, but she was commuting uh, five hours a day, her life is ruined. This is the new proletariat. This is, uh, you know, there is no possibility of having a family life. All the advantage of a city disappear if you commute five hours a day. So I think that here, uh, urban planners or, or manager of cities, uh, you know, sometimes I use uh, urban planners as scapegoat. I mean, in fact, anybody who is in, involved in managing cities, uh, they they have a responsibility for that. They should have indicators about this. Uh, commuting time and standard of uh, of housing and affordability. And uh, when these things deteriorate, they should take responsibility. And the, the only action they can have, increase the speed of transport, expand it, and increase, you know, let the people decide where they want, you know, to live, how much they want to, uh, in terms of land and floor space. And this should not be regulated. Next question at this mic. Many of the examples in your book, uh, counterexamples, were from New York City, uh, whether it's uh, the affordable housing lottery or trading FAR for, say, uh, benefits like fountains or parks. Um, if tomorrow you stumbled upon a magical genie, give me three policy recommendations and they shall become law. To maximally benefit the citizens of New York, what would they be? I will uh, remove all floor ratio restriction. I will remove the minimum floor space, and I will make sure that no developer ever get a, a holiday on property tax. Uh, I think this is, uh, this is too convenient for politicians. It never appears in the budget. You know, it's just a decrease in the revenue. And I think that's part of uh, the problem we have in infrastructure is precisely that. So I think that uh, uh, that that will be what I will uh, I will recommend. Now, uh, does that have a chance to be? You know, again, you you ask me something magic here, so I'm answering a magic answer. A question from the iPad. Quote: <clears throat> I work for Uber. Tell me what you think we're doing wrong. End quote. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think Uber is doing anything wrong. I mean. Uh, Maybe at the same time, if they don't pay their driver enough, they may run out of driver, but then the market will, uh, will show us that very quickly. Uh, so I think that 
Uber has increased, um, increased again, uh, probably even increase affordability in a certain way uh, because uh, it has made some area of New York which were not, you know, again, accessible to job in two or three hours, uh, suddenly uh, much less. Uh, I, uh, uh, I, I see only... Po- now, some people say, well, they are clogging streets, you know, so the, the traffic has, you know, slowed down a bit. Wait a minute here. Uh, if you look at the street of New York, I, I calculated it in my book. I say I don't. I think something like 25% is used by cars which are parked full time, free of charge. You know, so you uh, in the street. So if you are serious about congestion and the congestion created by Uber, you leave the curb for loading and unloading, and you still have two lanes for circulation, where in fact you have now only one lane, and usually uh, you have loading and unloading, by the way, not only Uber, but Amazon and all things, and so you are blocking. So again, if really the concern is about congestion and traffic, please use a variable space for traffic, and not or, or pedestrian, by the way, or bicycle, or whatever. But... Uh, Parking cars on street is a scandal. Next question at this mic. With rising support for just global authoritarianism, is it possible that we could see a 21st century Robert Moses? Why or why not? Well, yes, definitely, yes. No, we, we, uh, you know, we should not... Unfortunately, yes. Uh, you know, we should not consider that progress is a linear thing. Some of my colleagues even think that the Enlightenment might have been just a, a fluke in the history of the world, and that within 20 years we may all be under a regime which are authoritarian. Uh, it's quite possible. And then, of course, uh, yes, uh, Robert Moses will have, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it was, I mean, let's say, you know, after all, yeah, institution reacted to Robert Moses and, and limited, you know, the, the damage he did, but he did some positive things too. Uh, so, in fact, it's, it's institution, yes, you're right, it's institution, and those institutions could deteriorate faster than we think, I'm afraid so. Uh, we see that now in some country of Europe's, uh, and... Uh, as it could happen here. From the iPad, should Central Park be larger or smaller? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just the right size uh, because the important thing of Central Park, the same with, you, you could say the same as the avenue. Have the avenue too wide or, or too narrow and the street too narrow or should the block be longer? It doesn't matter. Uh, what matters was that when they established the grid and when they established Central Park a little later, they clearly established property right. Uh, and they, they separated what was public and what was private. And that allowed the market to work with a complete symmetry of information. Anybody, even when, say, 85th Street was just a field, everybody knew that it was 86th Street. And they knew whether, so anybody buying a lot there 
will have a complete symmetry of information. And this symmetry of information in the market is much more important than agonizing whether, you know, an avenue should be 30 meter, 35 meter, 25. Eventually, we will adjust. If the avenue are a little too, too narrow, we will adjust to it. We'll put congestion pricing, uh, and, uh, or we'll expand the city further. But the important thing is to establish, you know, we should not agonize on, is it the right, uh, you know, we should, of course, try to, to have the right decision, but we should not agonize on this thing. The important thing is to have very clear property right long in advance. So it cannot be manipulated uh, by people who move streets as uh, they pay politician or something or whoever, urban planners in order to move street. This is the most detrimental th thing which can have, uh, happen to a city. Quick last question from this mic. The uh, Rick Burns documentary about New York City, should that have been longer or shorter? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, could you repeat? I, I... The, the PBS documentary 15 years ago now that Rick Burns did about New York, uh, should that have been a longer story or a shorter story? I don't know this story. Which, sorry. This is a documentary, but I haven't seen it either. So I, I guess it, it should have been shorter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with that, please all subscribe to the podcast series, Conversations with Tyler. Alain, thank you very much, so much. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Tyler. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show. <laughs>